All right, church. We're in First we're in First Samuel chapter four this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn there. If not, it will be on the screen. We've been going through a terrific journey through the book of First Samuel, learning a lot of truths. And John Rossetti ended last week talking about the glory of God. Andy, could you just turn me down slightly, my brother? Uh, talking about the glory of God, and he shared with us that the Hebrew word is kabod or kavod. You can say it either way, B or V, kabod or kavod. And it means the weighty presence of God. It means the heaviness of God. It means the gravitas, the fullness of God in your midst, the glory of God. And we're going to continue that this morning as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 4 because this chapter is just full of so many truths that almost doesn't require someone to preach it. It could, it could preach itself, but, but I want us to be ready. And I want us to ask this question at the beginning of the sermon and then ask it again at the end. What are you doing with the presence of God in your life? What are you doing with the kabod of God in your life, with the glory of God in your life? And you'll see what I mean as we go through this chapter. About two weeks ago, I got a call my, my wife got a call from my sister. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, as I told you many times, and right around the corner from where we grew up lived my uncle, my mother's brother. And he had six children, three boys, three girls. Now, he was a staunch atheist. He did not want to hear anything about God. In fact, when he found out that his sister's son, me, was going to Bible college, he was almost cruel in his joking, how useless that was for somebody to go and study about God. Well, his children didn't grow up, obviously, in a nurturing environment in relationship to God, and most of them grew up not really believing in God. But, but the middle child, the female middle child on the girl's side, you know, the older girl, middle girl, and younger girl, she was close to me and my sister. Her name is Joni, and she didn't latch on to dad's atheism as much as the other children. She sort of believed in, in a sense that there was a God. But if you were to go to her home or if you were to talk to her, you would never get the idea that, that here's a Christian because she wasn't a believer, but she didn't throw out the concept that there might exist somewhere in some place an eternal being that we call God. Well, about, like I said, two weeks ago, we got this call from my sister and she said, Joni has cancer. I said, oh, how bad is it? Because that's always the question you want to know. How bad is it? Well, it's stage four, it's lung cancer, and it's in her bones, and it's in her liver, and it's spreading. And she probably has less than five years to live, if that. All right, what do you want us to do? How can we help? Well, you know, Joni is asking for prayers, everybody to pray, because she doesn't want to die. She's afraid to die. That was the word, afraid to die. And it got me thinking about this message this morning because oftentimes, church, when tragedy comes, we ignore God most of our life, but when something bad happens, what do we do? We go and get God out of his God box and we say, heal me, help me, solve this problem. I've ignored you all these years but now I need you and I'm gonna take the time to acknowledge you and in fact, if you don't heal me, I'm going to be angry at you because you claim to be a loving God. And many pastors, when preaching through 
1 Samuel chapter 4, we'll call this the chapter of the God in the box. And I will be no different this morning. And I said, of course, yeah, we'll pray for Joni. We, we, we love Joni. But my prayer church isn't that God heals her. That would be nice. But my prayer is that God saves her. My prayer is that God will be present in her life with a weight, with a gravity that he deserves, not merely a God in the box who's called upon when something goes wrong. And I pray as we go through and you see how Israel treats God, that your God is not in a box who's only called upon when something goes wrong. First Samuel chapter four. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle, drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. As we journey through 1 Samuel, we saw Hannah give birth to Samuel. What a blessing that was. But we also saw a priest named Eli. And he had two sons. And those two sons were priests as well. But church, the Bible tells us that these priests did not know the Lord. They were priests of Israel. They were high priests of Israel. And the Bible tells us that they did not know the Lord. Phineas and Hophni did not know the Lord. Yet they were entrusted with the sacred ceremonies of the Israelites in the tabernacle. But they did not know the Lord. So when the Philistines came against the Israelites, and the Philistines were a powerful people, they were actually the first to use metal weapons against Israel. Israel lost. But it's interesting, if you look at the last verse here, it doesn't say, well, it says this, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Interesting phrase. Why has the Lord defeated us today? Maybe a glimmer of acknowledging that something is wrong in the spiritual condition of Israel because they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us? And that's a smart question, a wise question to ask. Let's, let's go on. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So, that the, so the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. So what was the solution? What was the solution to the defeat at the hands of the Philistines? Well, Israel remembered how in the past, the Ark, if it went before them, would defeat their enemies. So they said, hey, hey, remember that Ark that's in the tabernacle? Why don't we go up and get it? and bring it before us on the battlefield, and surely this box that's in their tabernacle will help us defeat the Philistines. And they went and got the box. 
Now, if you know anything about the ark and how it was to be carried, there were special instructions for how the ark was to be carried by consecrated priests, by two poles, so no one touched the ark. There were instructions for this because the ark was supposed to be considered kabod, holy. It had the weight of God attached to it, the presence of God. But what do they do here? If you have a King James Bible, it actually uses the term, let us fetch the ark. Let us put our hands on it. Now, the two priests were with the ark, but it doesn't say that they transported the ark. It seems as though the common people grabbed the ark. Church, in 2 Samuel, hopefully we'll study that in the future, when Israel is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and they're doing it the right way, they're on a rocky road with mud, and the ark almost falls off of the two poles, and a man named Uzzah puts his hand up to steady the ark so it doesn't fall into the mud. He tries to do a good thing. And what happens to him, church? He's struck dead for touching the ark. Wow, sorry, that was a loud sip. Man, am I parched maybe? Can we cut that somehow, Andy? I don't know. Um, All right, so when Uzzah touched it, the Lord struck him down because of the holiness of the ark. Folks, these people run to the tabernacle, perhaps having common people who aren't consecrated priests grab the ark. Yes, Phineas and Hophni are with them. Doesn't say that they transported it. Who was struck down? Who died because they mishandled the ark? Nobody. Nobody died. Why? Why, when they grabbed the ark out of the tabernacle, why did no one perish immediately? Why, church? Because the Lord wasn't there anymore. The presence of the Lord wasn't there anymore. The Lord was never in a box. And seeing something interesting here. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, who sits above the cherubim. Where are the cherubim on the Ark, church? They're on the top, the mercy seat. They're on the top of the Ark. Where does God sit? Is he hidden in the box? God sits on top of the Ark, on top of the mercy seat. His presence rests there. He's never contained in a box. But they didn't die because he was no longer present among the Israelites. Remember my question for you. Where does God sit in your life? Where's the cabal of God in your life? Does he sit in the midst of your life or is he in a box? As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. 
The Philistines acknowledged the gravitas, the weight, the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. The pagan Philistines acknowledged the importance of the presence of God through the symbol of the Ark more than the people who were entrusted with its care. Those outside said, oh my goodness, this ark is going to devastate us because it is the presence of God. It is the glory of God. The Israelites have brought this thing into the, into the battle. What are we going to do? The enemy gave more weight to the presence of God than Israel. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp and they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They were polytheistic. They assumed that Israel had a mighty God, but also other gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. The Philistines gave the ark gravity. They gave the supposed presence of God in their mind, in their concept of what the Israelite God or gods were, weight, more weight than his people. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Church, it says the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. I want to point out, church, that God was not defeated. God was not defeated. Even though the Philistines get their hands on the ark and take the ark, God is not defeated because as we read the chapters to come, the Philistines quickly want to get rid of this ark because it is destroying them. But I want to point out here, that though Israel was defeated, God was not defeated. Why, church? Because God was not there. God was not there. The ark was taken. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. Eli's heart was trembling for the ark of God. Now this is an ungodly priest. This is a man who does not have respect for the things of God. This is a man who raised two sons who don't even believe in God. And we're told that in chapter two. Why, church, ask yourself, was his heart trembling for the ark of God? So the man came to tell in the city and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? What's with all the noise? 
Then the man came hurriedly and said, and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? How did things go, my son? The high priest of Israel asking, how did things go when we brought the ark out in an unworthy fashion? How did things go when you took God out of his box and asked him to defeat the Philistines? How did things go, my son? Now this man came from the front lines with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Why? Why did they do that in Israel? When they were convicted of sin, of sinning against God, when they knew that they had done something horrible and that God was against them, they would tear their clothes, they would rent their clothes, and they would say, oh, we have sinned, and they would pour dust on their head to say, oh, we are humble before you, God. Please forgive us for the sins that we have committed, for the way we've treated your glory, for the way we've treated your presence. The man who came from Benjamin came to the Israelites came to Eli with that attitude. We need to repent as a people. But Eli was afraid. How did things go, my son? Eli was afraid because he knew, he knew that this could be something really bad for him, for his people. And all his past sins and ignoring the presence of God may finally catch up with him. What Eli wanted to hear was, oh, things are great. Everything's good. The ark worked. God is still with us. But he, Eli was afraid because he was afraid that he was here, would hear your sins. Eli finally caught up with you. And God is going to punish you. Please tell me, Eli thought, that the wrath of God is not poured out on Israel. Please tell me. Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great slaughter among the people and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And listen to this church, and the ark of God has been taken. When the man mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel for 40 years. So the man brings the news and he says, Hophni and Phinehas are dead. But that's not what causes Eli to react. Well, Eli knew it was prophesied that his two children would be killed. Because his two children were worthless. His two children had no value in the eyes of God because they rejected God. But church, whose fault was that? Eli's. It was Eli's fault that he raised two children that did not honor God. Eli raised two children that did not say that God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of having his presence honored and respected. God is worthy of us to do whatever he asks of us because he is our king and he deserves glory. But Eli did not raise his children that way. So I ask you again, church, there's a theme here. What are you doing 
with the glory of God in your life? What are you doing with the glorious presence of God in your marriage, in your family, raising your children? Where is God in your life? Is he in a box waiting to be pulled out when it's necessary, when your grades are bad, when you're on the verge of divorce, when you get a cancer diagnosis? Is that when and only you pull out God? And of course, Sunday morning. But where is God the rest of the week? Where is God the rest of the time? Where is God? Eli fell off his seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For he was old, church, and this is important. He was old and heavy. The glory of God is the kabod, the weight of God. This is a different Hebrew word here, but it's a play on words. God is heavy. He's weighty. He's important. Eli, an ungodly man, died because he was heavy, weighty. Help me, church. What is this play on words here for? What are we to learn from this? Why was Eli heavy? Eli was heavy because he was eating the food of the people in an unworthy manner. He was living a large life off of the backs of the people. He was living high on the hog as a priest off of the name of God whom he did not acknowledge in a worthy manner. He was carrying his own glory. His own glory was to be honored in front of the Israelites. His own glory was the weight that killed him. His own glory. When he should have been focused on the glory and weight of God. It's so important, church, that we see this play on words. Because if we know the presence of God is supposed to be honored in our lives as Christians but we find the fat, the fruit, the materialism, the ease, the comfort of this world more significant and heavy than the weight of, of the glory of God, we too will kill ourselves seeking our own glory, seeking our own weight. What do you mean by that? Well, how many of us put God's glory first in our life, church? How many of us do that in regards to where we work, how we work, where we serve, how we serve, who we love, how we love? What is more important, God's glory or our comfort? I would put to you that in today's world, and since humanity has been around, we struggle with putting our selfish desires, our weight at a higher level of importance than God's weight in our lives, than God's honor and God's glory. And this heaviness is killing us as Christians. Why are so many Christians sad? Why are so many Christians depressed? Why are so many Christians still looking for meaning in their lives when they claim to have the ultimate meaning? God. Why are so many Christians still struggling with depression? with emptiness. Maybe, and I'm not a doctor, 
Please don't come out and say, I, I met, don't, you know I'm talking about. Why are so many Christians unsatisfied with God? It's because they have not given him the weight of his glory. We're fat and happy by consuming the things that make us fat and happy and by taking God out of the box only when necessary. And I look to the young people today and what are they learning from us? Are we Eli? Mothers and fathers, are we Eli? Are we teaching our sons and our daughters that it's more important to be fat and happy than to serve God? Or are we giving God gravity in our homes? Are we giving God gravity in our homes? What are we teaching? Well, what if, let's go on. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth. For her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the, woman, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. The glory of God did depart from Israel. And remember that glory is his presence, had departed, departed from Israel. Now, if the glory of God has departed from Israel, is there hope? Is there any hope for Israel? Yes. The women around her tried to tell her, take heart. You have given birth to a baby boy. What is that promise to the people of Israel and to us? What was the promise to Abraham? Land, seed, and blessing. Through a woman, God said, way back in the garden, our Savior would come. The women are telling her that the glory of God has left, but he is not far from any of us. His promise of salvation still stands. In fact, here's evidence of it. You've given birth to a male child and through that male child would come Jesus Christ. So church, if you are not feeling the weight of God's glory, if you are God in the box Christians, Yes, God's glory may have departed from your life, but he's not far from you. And his promises still stand that if you would cry out to him and ask him to restore his glory in your life, he will do so because he is a gracious God who loves you. So though this is a desperate situation for Israel, the promise stands that his covenant stands. There's conditional, as John said, and there's unconditional. The unconditional covenant that there would be a savior who would die for your sins and die for my sins stands. So I'm gonna put up a passage here. This is from Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, weighed it down. 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my weight is light. What's he talking about there, church? He's talking about giving up the weight of your glory for the weight of his glory. And he says, and another great play on words, my weight that I want to put on you is light. It's the glory of God. The weight that Jesus wants to come alongside us and bear with us is the glory of God that he wants to rest upon you in a worthy manner. He wants you to understand that he has died for your sins and has been resurrected so that the glory of God can be placed from him onto you. And that burden is light because it's a burden of love. It's not a burden of self-fulfillment. It's not a burden of finding joy in things. It's a burden of being wrapped in the love of Jesus Christ and what greater pleasure could you find than putting on a yoke of love, putting on the glory of God. I'm gonna ask the men to come forward because we do have communion this morning. But as we, as we take part in communion this morning, I, I want you to have a time of reflection as we always do because it's a serious thing when we take communion Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel, when people would bring sacrifices to the tabernacle, they would take for themselves the best meat. And they didn't want the boiled meat, they wanted the raw meat so that they could resell it and make money off of the sacrifices of God. And then they would participate in the ceremonies at the temple, at the tabernacle, as though they weren't trampling underfoot the heaviness of God's glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the early church would come together for meals, for, for suppers, and at the end of those suppers, they would quiet themselves and they would have communion. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, says, some of you are coming early, eating all the food, and the poor people don't have a chance to eat the choice food, and yet you still partake in the Lord's Supper with your attitude being me first, me first, not establishing in your heart the glory of God. So church, as we take communion this morning, I need you and want you to ask yourself, is your God in a box or is he out? Are you taking communion in a worthy fashion this morning? And if not, lay it before him. Open your heart before him and say, I have kept you in a box. And that's not where you want to be. You want the weight of your glory to rest gently on my shoulders. And that's what I want.